Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Hi folks, Scott Postman, Joffrey Swade here. We're your hosts today, and we're going to be diving into chapter eight, the uh, paideia, the promise of Christian paideia in norms and nobility. Right, David Hicks' classic on education. Now, uh, you may not remember this off the top of your head or, or find where in the chapter you pulled this from, but what, what was the title you were toying with for this episode? <laughs> I love this this little phrase that he said, a little metaphor. He says, holding the question of value by the throat at arm's length. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking about the modern educator, and I thought, man, if there's some way we could make a title yes. out, of, out of that, that'd be great. And it's a great line, and it's uh, it's beautifully snarky. Uh, but you know this this chapter is actually uh, not a negative chapter, right? It's it's not right. a refutation as as others have been, but instead a vision of, of of what Christian paideia is, what the promise of Christian education is. Yeah, well, you know, I, I one of the things that I, I love about this chapter, and we're going to read an excerpt that I think sort of summarizes a lot of his um, argument. But you and I, as we have worked through, this is kind of our first time through norms and nobility, yeah. and um, you know when we started this podcast. We've read it and, you know, going over it together. Um, But we wanted to sort of explore this on air and kind of talk through it and um, maybe have a a library of of resource around this book because it's so popular and has been for so long, you know, just we we would have that. Um, And both of us at different times uh, and, and, you know, we've looked at this idea that is he going to bring in Christianity at any point? Right. right. <laughs> there's a, there's a little bit of heaviness on, on the classical side and yes. here it is. You know? Yeah. Well, and you know, it, it's not that he fails to do so, but I, I think we, he's talking to a different audience, right, right? right? He's talking to an audience that exists today. Uh, but he's talking to an audience that is, is thoroughly acculturated into this idea of neutral education, right? And so as in like, it's, it's secular in the, you know, in this satanic (laughs) neutral sense that they mean, right? It's, 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 it's a deceiver thing. That's why I say satanic, but, um, so he's, he's, he's sort of leading folks along. So the Christian, you know, theology is present yeah. right? and Christ is present in, in the book as you're going through. But we, you know, we usually swim in the waters of Christian educators and Christian thought on education, speaking to other Christians who are also sort of turned on to this. And, and so I, I think uh, that sometimes our appetite would get a little like, well, come on, talk about Jesus. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's bring, let's, let's bring this in. Well, and here's, and here's where he does finally, like we're halfway through the book. It has taken us a, a it, we, one academic year of this podcast. We're halfway through a very short book. <laughs> well, that does. But, but you know, this is where he finally begins to, you know, uh, you know, just uh, open up the throttle. Yeah. And this is great. So let's start with this, this little excerpt or it's a fairly lengthy excerpt. Uh, he says by establishing the identity of the Eros and by insisting on the faithful or the faith connection between knowledge and responsibility, Christian Paideia fulfilled the promise that classical education of classical education by avoiding the egocentric and ideological pitfalls of pagan humanism. For the Christian, God in Christ firmly occupied the position of supreme value. This fact became the cornerstone of responsible learning and saved the conscience from being at odds with the self. So long as classical education remained centered in the self, even if just for the purpose of transcending the self, conscience rebelled. 
But this contradiction between the self-seeking perfection and the conscience-desiring transcendence was relieved by Christian paideia. Wherein Christ replaced self and the demands of conscience were met, the paideia of the Christian is imitatio Christi. Christ must take shape in him, writes Warner Yeager in Greek paideia and early Christianity. The influential object of learning became the incarnate God rather than an abstract humanist ideal type and the incompleteness of pagan tradition was rendered whole by the Christian ideal. Mm. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I see this, it's, it, so you know, it's actually, it's possible to have some sort of conception of Christian paideia and still have it be pagan. And what I mean Mm. by that is uh, it's possible for it not to be of grace. Right. Right. And I, and I think even, okay, well it's imitatio Christi. So we, we must, we must imitate Christ and, and, and that also can be you know, very, very works based because, you know, education is about mm-hmm. uh, improving and excellence growing. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that can be very natural, but Hicks has this phrase in here. That's so important that the, the conscious desiring transcendence, was relieved by Christian paideia, where Christ replaced self and the demands of conscience were met. So now we are free yeah. to be truly and fully educated. And this jives with a lot of what we've been talking about uh, with you know, uh, certain types of education uh, being ennobling, mm-hmm. right? And, and how you know, education in the past was often just for aristocrats and certain educational philosophies we're okay. Well, we're going to train uh, the the rulers of this society to be just rulers of this society, but Christian paideia does in on on a, on a, on a smaller scale um, what Christ does for all of us, which is make us princes. Yes, right. He he um, by you know he he contrasts when when we get to this place in in the chapter, um, he's really unpacked and developed the limitations of the pagan um, ideology, the pagan uh, approach right. to education, and and we would all argue. I, I would argue with C.S. Lewis that the pagan and Christian had more in common than the modern man has in common with either one. Oh, right? I'd agree yeah. with that too. And you know, I I love uh, not to get off on. I love what Lewis says in De Descriptione Temporum, where he, he says everybody. But he says we're going back to paganism and he said they're no we're not he said it'd be great if we saw a white bull being sacrificed on the steps right. of westminster he said but you know because what lewis is saying is what what happens from the pagan classical uh imagination is you reach these limitations and you start anticipating you know something right. you start anticipating whether you would have thought of christ or not you anticipate anticipate this need for christ and and so christianity animates the the classical vision uh there's something he says here that that's that's helpful he says the the creative tension between pagan humanism and christianity animates normative education and promises to lift the student to a level of understanding above reason in an experience of faith Faith satisfies man's cravings for a transcendent justification of the ideal type at the same time as it makes possible on a universal scale the self-transcendence that the ancient philosophers sought only by esoteric means. So this this idea of the, the pagans, whether it would be the uh, dialectic or whether it would be the uh, rhetorician approach to, uh, to education, both had its limits in, in the human reason. And that ideal type becomes Christ. You yes. know? So it's, it's, an, it's animated by Christianity through grace. 
it's animated. Um, uh, the classical education is animated by um, Christ being the fulfillment of our failures. Because you know what does education do but point out our lack, right? And that conscience is is at war with the self over this. So Christ satisfies that. And, and so there, there's, um, and then we have that grace that you talked about, that compelling love. And he equates in here. He takes um, as the early church fathers did, and, and sort of baptizes eros um in a way that that works that shows there's this compelling love and this is what christianity does for education Mm. yeah so i think one thing that would be really worth talking about would be what faith has to do with education Mm, yeah right after all isn't uh, I, I need to learn things. What does that have to do with faith? Yeah. So he, he unpacks it here. I don't know. I'll skim through while I'm talking and see if I find the actual quote, um, but I'll just summarize it in, in the meantime. And, and he, he appeals to James when he talks about this as well, uh, where he says faith without works is dead. So in, in the education of uh, a strictly um, mind-centered education. You're just learning these facts, but there's no connection to the reality. So if you believe that there is hope, if you believe that there is something, there is an ideal image, if you believe that, you know, you are saved by grace, you know, that, that there's redemption, then there comes with that a responsibility. And, and by believing, our faith grows as we act on that belief, he says. And, and so we don't, we don't just leave it in the intellect. That's, that's sort of the way the, the pagan humanists would have kept it is faith is, is just a matter of the, of the mental, you know, it's the, it's the intellect. And so, uh, for example, uh, while they'll both point us in a, in a similar direction, Plato's ideal forms, right, is a sort of faith. We, we have this faith that there is this, perfect circle, you know, circleness, right. you know, but now we actually have something that animates it. <clears throat> we actually have a Christ that animates this. Yes. And animates it to come to us. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, since, since the days of Moses, God has been reminding us that he comes to <laughs> us and, you know, and that's a big difference. I think, you know, between Christ and Plato. Yes. Right. So, you know, the, 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 the Greeks realized that there was that which was better mm-hmm. and how might we strive for it but the I, the the christian concept of revelation here is yes. so important so god shows us the things and then we have a responsibility right it's still you know we can we can ig- ignore the ideal types up in the ether yeah. right or but we can also ignore the thing being waved right in front of our faces right. you know, we've, we've proven that over and over again through history so we have this responsibility to accept and handle the revelation well, but that makes all the difference, right? God, God promises to bring us that which we need, and that has enormous pedagogical ramifications, right? What does that mean for communication, for language between humans? What does that mean for the relationship between parents and children, between teachers and students, if your entire idea it it hangs from this idea that truth can be revealed 
Well, and, and that's, you know, what, what Hicks actually addresses here in, in what you're talking about in the revelation is the incarnation, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that truth is revealed to us in Christ. And he says he entered time only briefly to complete and perfect the tyrannizing image, right? So, so Christ comes to us because, uh, and, and he, again, he references Paul in, in Acts 17, where he's, you know, in the Areopagus mm-hmm. trying to uh, preach to these, you know, they're religiously, um, idolatrous right um but they but they have this um well what paul will say is is you know we can see you're striving you're groping god gave it to you but but now he calls you to repent because what you're groping for came down to us right, right. and the light so switch has been flipped yeah it's been, it's been done <laughs> so there's nothing else to gr- to grow for so this tyrannizing image this this ideal type uh this grace that is being sought for doesn't have to be reached for in some realm of some some realm of the forms that we don't know where this is at, you know, it's housed in a person in the person, Jesus Christ, who, who comes to us. And, and, and what an enormous difference. I mean, let's, what an enormous difference. Let's put ourselves in the, the mentality of, uh, of, of living in an age like that. Right. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it is so hopeful. I mean, and he uses the word hope a lot in this chapter. It, it is so hopeful that, the cosmos has changed the truth itself in a way yeah. has changed. Well, and I'm, and I'm drawing lots of quotes here uh, from the book, but he, he talks about um, uh, Schumacher who argues that faith, instead of being taken as a guide uh, leading the intellect to an understanding of higher levels is seen as opposing and rejecting the intellect is therefore itself rejected. What, what he's talking about here at the end of the close of this chapter is that when People don't look at faith correctly, right? When they when they um, ignore faith or they just pass it off as some sort of this is just your religion, you know, they pass right. it off. They don't recognize that that truth that we need, that thing that animates, has been rejected. So you're you're basically, well, C.S. Lewis would say you're cutting off the limb you're sitting on, right? You've gone out yeah. on a limb and then you're sawing that thing off, and that's exactly what Hicks is saying here. So there is this great revelation. In Christ, you know Christ, who um, again, and Hicks points this out, is that uh, all of the Greek philosophers anticipated Christ. Everything that they, when they reached the limit, they couldn't get any further. When Christ came down, He satisfies. He answers that question, right. you know, and He does that in education. Well, even um, even if we, since we're talking about Plato, and Hicks doesn't address this here, but Plato's philosopher king you know, is anticipated, um, you know, Plato virtually says this, um, so I'm kind of, you know, diverting here for a little bit, but it, it speaks to what we're talking about. Plato in uh, book eight, you know, w- uh, walks through the different regimes um, on the basis, uh, you know, the different um, regimes seeking for what justice looks like. Okay. And he does this as he has followed up on his uh, allegory of the cave in book seven. All right. And so book seven talks about this philosopher King, right. Mm -hmm. And, and book eight is this sort of contrast to what book seven gives us. So it's the allegory of the cave where this one escapes the cave of images goes out and sees the sun. But when they come down, uh, when he comes back into the cave, he's doing, it's a great injustice done to him to be the educator of these people, because if they could be free, they would kill him. They'd beat him and kill him. And the Greek word that Plato uses can be translated crucifixion. Uh-huh. Um, literally. So what he's saying is basically, if you find a man who has seen the good, yeah. uh, who comes down, 
Um, and he is the philosopher, right? He, he's a philosopher king um, who suffers the most injustice while never being unjust himself. Make that man your king. Yeah. So, I mean, now he doesn't have Christ right. in, in view here, but he's basically describing what the Jews would understand as yeah, Messiah. I mean, the church fathers uh, went to town on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it, it, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna allow you to uh, get into an exposition. Say the commonalities <laughs> and differences, differences between philosophers and prophets. Uh, but you know, I mean, that's that. There's so much fertile ground there for for us to think about, and and there is something uh, that is prophetic about the role of. Well, and anyone in authority, but prophetic about the role of, of any educator. Yeah. Well, and, and here, um, while, you know, we, uh, we were talking about this aspect of Plato, uh, Hicks is going to mention here, um, Erasmus who says that, um, who, who quotes from book six of, of Plato's Republic. And he says, I don't mean by philosopher, one who is learned in the ways of dialectic or physics, but one who casts aside the false pseudo realities and with open mind seeks and follows the truth to be a philosopher and to be a Christian is synonymous. In fact, the only difference is in the nomenclature. And so the Paideia of Erasmus, um, he makes no distinction between seeking and following the truth uh, because what Hicks says is in a life surrender to the claims of faith and love, the one included the other, right? Yeah. So when when we have Christ, who's come to us, this revelation, uh, the faith and the love that both the you know that the Greeks were seeking after, they're both fulfilled in Christ, which is what is the prerequisite. He says to be an educated person. Yeah, which, yeah, which is to seek after, right? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 interesting how. Uh, you know, the Christian faith makes everything teleological, right? You know, and 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 nothing is is static anymore. And by that, of course, we don't mean that there's no longer an absolute, or there's no longer truth, or we can no longer stand upon a rock, but rather that everything has purpose and direction. And you know, the, this 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 idea from Erasmus that you know to be a philosopher and to be a Christian is, is is synonymous touches on so many other things. I mean, the philosopher king, and you know, well, you could have two ideas of what a king is. A king could be the one who is crowned, mm-hmm. or a king could be the one who is kingly. Yes, right. And, yes. and, and what makes the person a king? And so then, as Christians, we have the priesthood of believers. Yes. We are all the sons of God. And so, you know, we're all called to be so fully human that we can say, yes, you are a philosopher. Yes, you are a king. Yes, you are a poet. Yes, you are all of these things as fully as you may be. And and, and that should be what we strive for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not necessarily that, okay, well, you know, that's the job you've been given. That does happen, <laughs> right? But it's not, it's not that. Right. It's that our, our, our natures themselves grow into all, all of this. Well, and it's because it's all embodied in the gospel, right? In, in Christ, you know, the, yeah. gospel, the gospel empowers that. Well, so we've been talking about the way that Christianity animates education um, by relieving, by redeeming eros, by uh, redeeming um, the truth, giving us this ideal image. But one of the things that I think is very interesting uh, for us maybe to, to kind of contrast this with is what Hicks, Hicks talks about in the section four of chapter eight, the modern school that has abandoned the classical striving after a normative education. So everything we've been talking about is the way that Christianity 
um, I, I use the word animate, but gives life to this normative kind of education that the Greeks were seeking after. So Christianity actually fulfills all of these roles. And um, the modern educator, though, basically um, dismisses it. So he says, uh, by contrast, the modern uh, school has abandoned the classical striving after a normative education, as well as the hopeful Christian paideia that crowned the ancient tradition. And I like the way he, you know, we've been talking about the king, but Christianity crowned the ancient tradition. Mm. Instead, it adopts a posture of non-dogmatic, value-free learning that is not only false, but dangerous. And then he quotes Theodore Sizer, who says that general expectations notwithstanding, there is no such thing as a value-free school, right? Um, schools have to take moral positions just to operate. They have to treat children in one way or another, thus willy-nilly teach a set of norms by example. No teacher exists in a vacuum, wholly value-free. So we, we, we have in contrast to this normative education that the Greeks laid out, Hicks is saying, um, has been am- animated and crowned by Christianity that's fulfilled all the things that, that, you know, they couldn't, you know, they hit their limits like Virgil in the, um, in the divine comedy, you can only take Dante so far. And so to this, um, observation, um, he, he's going to add four observations, um, between classical and modern school. Um, and I'll just, you know, uh, what I'll do is maybe I'll just list these here and let you comment if you have a, mm-hmm. a thought on here. He says, first, what is significant is not that the modern school cannot rid itself of values, but that general <coughs> expectations should wish it to do so. So the, the fact, he said, it's not so much, let's, let's start with the fact, okay, number one, there's no such thing as a value-free education. Okay. But the thing that he's going to add, the first thing he's going to add to this problem with modern education is the fact that the general expectations of parents and people and educators in the modern education system wants it to be that way. Right. <laughs> what? Yeah. I mean, and it's, 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 it's completely because of indoctrination because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you constantly see news reports of, of families unhappy with their government school, unhappy with their government school. And they keep showing up and they keep protesting and they keep writing letters. And yet at no point does it occur to anyone that they don't have to do this. You don't have to. Right. Yeah. yeah but, but this, this is what education is. Yeah. Right. We've, we've, we so wholeheartedly bought that. And, you know, so we, we even, we even have Christians who say, well, me you know, my six year old is uh, we, I send him to government schools cause he's a missionary. And, you know, we totally lose at that point. We don't even know what education is anymore. Right. right? right. Yeah. That's, I, I hate that. Uh, I hate that analogy. I, I heard somebody say one time when you, when you put a canary in with a bunch of crows, uh, the canary doesn't teach them to sing. It just stops singing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's a terrible thing to do to kids. But so the second thing then, so not only is there's no such thing as a value free education, the fact that people would look for that is, is appalling. Right. Second, uh, to add to it, which would really be the third in his list is what is amazing is not the consideration of people's religious motivations in countless classrooms, but the total absence and conscientious avoidance of such considerations in countless more classrooms. So not only do we avoid values altogether, but we don't even want to talk about religion, metaphysical possibilities. We want to eliminate a section of reality from education. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, but uh, you know, and, and the phenomenon that I'm about to describe is now, you know, pervasive uh, across the West. But when, when I was a child growing up in another country, uh, I, I ended up my last two years in that country, I ended up at an American school and 
we took social studies, which yeah, <laughs> I know for sure I've mentioned that on this podcast. Like, what is social studies? But, you know, there's all this American civic propaganda effectively in these textbooks, right? And they're just talking about the melting pot that was the United States. And, and then I moved here and, and I had been imagining this just just this just wild fruitfulness and and so much so many different people doing so many different things no all it meant was that all these people who look different are doing the same thing right. you know and, <laughs> you know so we, we don't we don't have we don't even have plurality we don't have the promised plurality right we don't have uh, oh, this guy's a Muslim, this guy's a Jew, this guy's a Christian, this guy's an atheist, this kid and their families. And we're just fully engaged with all of that. You know, that, that, that would not be as good as a Christian paideia, but it would be way better than the lameness we, we have now, which is just pretending that all of it is irrelevant. Yes. Yeah. That is a sad, uh, you know, that's a sad commentary, you know, coming, coming from, you know, you know, from a, a, a school outside of the U.S. and then coming there and, and discovering that, um, what a sad commentary. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think yeah, I think like you said, it's ubiquitous now. It's pervasive in terms of the way we we see everything happening. Because ultimately, it's Marxist. Was that whispered in this room? <laughs> All right. So the the third thing or fourth in his list, he said, what is worth remarking is not that our schools inevitably teach values by implication and by innuendo every day, but that the grounds for these values, whatever they are, are devious and inaccessible because hidden or ignored. So whatever values are there, uh, you know, whatever, you know, you just whispered Marxism, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be for today. Um, those are the undertones. Uh, those are the value systems systems that that people are teaching from right? right but we just we're not going to call it that we're not going we're going to pretend it doesn't exist and so now it's even devious yeah i mean there's going to be a god yeah right yep and and so when the god of the system is is clear uh, at least to, to some of us and i think it is becoming you know more and more clear but um you know, the, it's very important in, for this particular civic religion to pretend that it's not a religion, right? Because that's how it suppresses. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's the new opiate. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Get rid of that opium. We're going to replace it with this one. All right. So the last one would be the fifth in his list or fourth that's added to the uh, value-free or uh, pretending there's a value-free education. He, and this is where my, my favorite quote here comes from. He says, what really matters is not so much what is taught, although a normative character of great literature is emphatically preferred, but how it is taught to teach art and letters analytically holding the question of value by the throat at arm's length is to wrest life from learning and to promote the illusion of knowledge without responsibility. And so he goes into a long, uh, I don't want to call it a diatribe, but he does go into a long exposition on what C.S. Lewis called making the more clever devil. Right. Right. So what you're doing is you're pretending not, first of all, you're saying there's, we're giving a value free school. Um, Secondly, he says, um, you're pretending that that um, 
there are no values, right? That this is neutral. And then you're going to add to that, um, this pretend we're not going to talk about certain parts of reality because we don't want to imply that there is some sort of religion being talked here. And then we have this pervasive undercurrent of a, of a value system that nobody, we don't have a name for it. We're yeah. not going to call it that. Right. Well, but it needs to be a value system because yeah. how can you have a conversation if there are no values? Yeah, you can't, there is simply the transference of information and, just the pretense that there is no no value yeah. is more harmful. I mean, I, I would rather send my child, and th- this would be an evil if this had to happen, but I would rather have my child at a Muslim school than a state school. Yeah. Right? Like like Lewis's idea of, you know, it'd be better if there were white bulls being sacrificed in front of, in front of Westminster. Anyway, uh, you know, a couple paragraphs down from what you were just reading. Uh, he says, purged of pagan complexity and Christian mystery, modern education's habit of considering everything analytically as a physical datum fails to inspire change in the learner. Philosophy, religion, history, literature all become mere physical data. This posture of analytical value-free learning diametrically opposes the wisdom of both pagan and Christian paideia. It methodically strips our cultural inheritance. Absolutely. And and that's exactly what Lewis meant when he said that the modern man is totally different than than the pagan or the christian and right. they're more like each other than 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 the modern man is well and then he gives the analogy here as a, a sort of a clincher the the kind of closing um, conclusion of that section that it's like giving a child a sword mm. um, and letting him go loose on all of his friends without ever teaching him how to use it or what, you know, where you can swing it, you know, or we might say what might happen if you swing it. Yeah. Yeah. If if you, if you swing this thing or let's just give him a loaded gun and, you know, go play. Um, It's when you load people with facts and data with no training on how to use it, what it means, uh, what its limitations are, you know, all the things that we, that would come with a normative education, you know, you make that more clever devil. Yeah. And and the men without chests, right. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep using, Lewis yeah, just- uh, yeah, I love, I, I feel like Lewis sort of, you know, comments on all these things for everybody after Lewis, you know, is sort of, you know, borrowing from him without <laughs> acknowledging, but in any case, so uh, to wrap up here, the, the promise of, of the Christian paideia, uh, it's a great chapter where Hicks is basically showing us the limitations of the classical you know, Greek um, approach to education, the pagan approach, the way Christianity animates it, crowns it, makes it actually possible. And then we come to the modern and we contrast both of those. So we, it would be better to be pagan because that'll eventually lead to Christian. But to be modern is to strip of any possibility that you could ever have a normative education. Just fill somebody's heads with facts and doubt and make right. them clever devils. I mean, with, the, with, the, with the pagan classical education, you can have an idea of truth. You can have conversation. We don't even have that. But Christian paideia is about revelation and faith. Yes. Amen. All right. So long, everybody. Thanks so much. God bless.